we know that this is about control and power, what as Unitarian Universalists are we willing to do to ensure that folks with uteruses have access to that? Getting access to doctors who are still willing to perform this? Are we going to be running underground railroads again? How does our faith and theology call us to be in these moments? What are you willing to put on the line in order for people to continue to have access to the healthcare that they need. Hi, this is Aisha Hauser. I'm a minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, hope it builds your faith, hope it gives you perspective to experience the power of Unitarian Universalism at work in your life. Enjoy the message. I'm Christina Rivera, she, her pronouns. I'm coming to you from Augusta County, Virginia, where it is cold and windy and definitely heading into the dregs of winter. You can tell how excited I am about that prospect by my voice. Don, how you doing? I am okay. I'm Don Fortune. I'm coming to you from South Jersey, this tiny little town of Egg Harbor City. How you doing over there, honey? I'm good. I'm Aisha Hauser. She, her pronouns. I'm in Seattle, Washington. Full disclosure, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we are having a good time on The View today because we don't have a guest. So it is dealer's choice, right? So you've got the three hosts. And before we went live, we decided what we were going to talk about today. So welcome to the wild ride of The View. And we wanted to open it up with, you know, some of the... The news that's coming out of all of the media outlets, which is the Supreme Court talking about making a decision, another decision on Roe versus Wade and what it will mean to us as Unitarian Universalists in trying to engage with that decision. So I think that one of the things that we know is that Roe v. Wade has been under attack for a long time, right? Almost from the moment it was decided case in the Supreme Court. It has been under attack in local spaces, in local government spaces, in state government spaces, in federal spaces. And we've seen that decision shrink and shrink and shrink in terms of the protection of women and our people with uteruses to be able to decide for ourselves, you know, how we would like medical decisions made about our bodies. And I think that one of the things that I noticed was a lot of folks saying, hey, we were shouting about this in 2016. We were saying that this was the issue. And now y'all are surprised that this is the issue. And it just, we really need to pay attention when folks who have the most invested in the decision are not being part of the decision-making process. And in 2016, we saw folks who want to be able to make medical decisions about their own bodies say, this is a big deal and people need to wake up and need to recognize that. Aisha, I saw you nodding. Well, I saw one of the, one of the things that Justice Barrett said now, I'm not going to quote directly, obviously, but something to the effect of it's okay if women don't get abortions because they can 
safe havens. They can leave their babies places. I mean, even the oral argument, the things that are coming out of the conservative justice mouths are unsurprising, horrific. And also let's remember 53% of white women voted for this. And so it's still back to what's being upheld here and why. And here's the thing, Amelia Bonow, who lives in Seattle, she started the Shout Your Abortion movement, was at the steps of the Supreme Court yesterday protesting. And basically now the true pro-life movement, which is pro-choice movement, is making clear, get abortion pills in people's hands as soon as possible. There's actually international websites that are sending abortion pills to folks in the United States. It's really just beyond comprehension that we have school shooters and the same pro-life, pro-life, I put in quotes, seem to be fine with that, the anti-choice people, but yet want to control. I mean, because so we know it's not about life. It's not about anybody's life. It's about controlling people with uteruses. And really, it's wanting to control white women having more white babies, right? Because when you really look back at where the controlling people with uteruses came from, it's from white men reading that white people will not be the majority in 40, 50, 60 years. And all of a sudden, the movement to save fetuses began. So, what I understand, looks like it's Roe v. Wade will be overturned. That's what folks are saying. I think along with the save the white fetuses because we don't want to be outnumbered is the age-old angst that men have about women controlling their own bodies. This notion of property and this notion of wealth and this notion of what is mine and what is not mine. As a man can never be sure if the baby is his, but the woman is always sure that the baby is hers, using generalized binary terms, forgive me, please. And I think this goes back to women controlling their bodies, period, including their sexuality. And and I think that tends to get clouded over. We tend not to talk about that because it's easier to just talk about saving fetuses. But I put this in with the realm of the realization of sex work. That's not about saving women from exploitation. That's about men being mad that someone is going to charge them for access that they think they are entitled to. I had this conversation last week at a thing I was at where I said, we all sell our bodies. We just sell different parts of them. If you work in construction, don't tell me you're not selling your body when you come home and have a handful of Advil for dinner, right? to stop the pain. And if you're working in a coal mine, don't tell me you're not selling your body and your health for an incredibly hazardous way to make a living. The bottom line is men have been making laws against sex work for as long as ever since, I would say, women discovered that they could charge somebody for access. And women have this one resource that men don't have. And if they choose to, and they can charge for access to that service. And frankly, men get right sideways grumpy about it when they are asked to pay for something they think they should have for free. So this is about controlling bodies and access. And men want to have access historically, and I'm talking patriarchy, please, wicked generalized terms. I know that. But yeah, I mean, 
This is about controlling bodies and having access to other people with or without their consent. That's what that's mm-hmm. about. So to Aisha's point, it looks like the writing is on the wall. And mm. if we know that, as Don says, that this is about control <clears throat> and power, what as Unitarian Universalists are we willing to do to ensure that folks with uteruses have access to that? So are we going to be getting access to doctors who are still willing to perform this? Are we going to be running underground railroads again? These are some of the questions that we had when Trump was coming out of power and we weren't sure how things were going to go. And and we're right back here because those mechanisms of power are still in play, right? The mechanisms of power that he was able to access, i.e. The, the loading of the Supreme Court, are going to come into play and they're going to be in play for a long time. So how is you use, how does our faith and theology call us to be in these moments? That's my question for the folks that are listening is what are you willing to put on the line in order for people to continue to have access to the healthcare that they need? That's such a good question. There's so many answers in my head to that because learning this country's history, in addition to your well-made point, Dawn, about sex work, it also, you know, owning other people has not stopped in this country. So when this country was founded on enslavement of Africans and women, Black women, enslaved women, never had a right to their bodies, ever. This is what this continuation of. That's one piece. I'm thinking about where our brick and mortar congregations are. So CLF is online. It's global. Yay for that. And unfortunately, I'm just going to name this. I know it's not something we're fixing tomorrow, but it's important to recognize that we don't have many brick and mortar congregations in predominantly poor working class cities or towns in this country. So where most of our brick and mortar congregations reside will be in spaces where people will find ways to have safe access to the abortions they need. The doctors will write what they need to write so it can happen. What the question is like, how do we help be I guess you, you, the vote is one successful. How do we disseminate information on ways to access the abortion pill is one thing, but I know that what if folks find out they're pregnant after the time they could take the abortion pill? What does it look like to disseminate information? What does it look like to, again, upset the system in a way that make it painful for this country to restrict life this way, restrict the people with... Unitarian Universalists, I experience our faith community as such a mixed bag. I mean, we do some things so well and other things it's like, it hurts my heart sometimes our missed opportunities. So I always say we never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, but maybe this is a time where building coalitions, (laughs) creating relationships with community centers that are in cities and towns where people will need more information and access to resources. I mean, honestly... Your question is one I live with all the time, Chris, is how do we as Unitarian Universalists show up? How do we inspire people to want to do better in the sphere that they're able to? Everybody can do something. And so what is that something and how do we inspire people to want to do that? And I don't know. I I think about that as well. Well, I think to your point of where our congregations are, you know, let's look at that as 
as a bonus, right? Let's look at that as the privilege that it is because maybe that's the end of the railroad, right? Mm. So getting people to these privileged places where they can access an abortion on demand, you have to, you have to be able to have that resource. So to your point of making those connections, but also then if our bricks and mortar congregations and Unitarian Universalists, Free World Unitarian Universalists, are in places of privilege to be able to host somebody who needs an abortion, who has determined that that's what they need, and they need to be in a space for two weeks, three weeks, whatever, that you need to adopt that person legally for a month in order for them to have rest. I don't care what it is, right? Mm. What I care about is that people are, are saying, this is the privilege that I have. How am I going to use that to live out my faith? I too would love to have more of our UU congregations in more diverse communities. But if that is not the case, then that doesn't let people off the hook, right? I've got wonderful health care in my backyard, right, where I live. And so what does that privilege then give me responsibility for? Right. I think that UU the vote is really super important and and we saw how it can really shift. We're in a really bad spot. Roe v. Wade goes away. That's yeah, going to take decades to reverse. And so what are we going to be able to do? What resources are we going to be putting into place? What is the UUA going to do? How are they going to put our collective resources to work for working on reversing that, but then also working on what do we do in the meantime? Because I think the last thing we want is to go back to back alley abortions. Some states will, the blue states will allow abortions. It'll be legal in the blue states and it'll be illegal in the red states. That's my understanding from my lawyer friends. I'm not an attorney, but that's my understanding from what I've been, that if it gets struck down by the Supreme Court, which is looking very likely, then it'll go to the states. I'm guessing that the blue States will have open, hopefully, open access to abortion access, and then the red states will not. Is is my understanding? It's not going to be enough for them to just say you just can't have it here. They're going to oh yeah, like expand that. And thank God that that was put on hold by the appellate court, but that's still working its way. It's not going to be a let's shift everybody to a blue state who needs access. So everybody listening or watching, when you show up at church on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day it is that you show up at church, virtually or in person, that's what I mean. Maybe that's the conversation that that gets started is what are the resources that you all have that can be put into play? Because we need to have these plans sooner rather than later. And, And to also speak out loud that as Unitarian Universalists, it is my experience that I have seen us sort of to suddenly start up a thing. There's a problem. Let's start a thing as opposed to let's find out what thing there is already available and help them. Right. So that's just something I think we need to stay out loud just to remind us that people are already doing this work. So it would be most helpful, I think, to reach out to those folks, find out who they are and build relationships with them and support the work that's already existing because folks in the red states know what they need 
any more than somebody in Massachusetts, New Jersey, or Chicago, or something else knows what they need. Yeah, Amen. Just want to speak that into this space. Something else going on this week. We want to talk about, I think it's an interesting two-piece thing here, which is the MFC meeting, which is why we don't have Michael. The Ministerial Fellowship Committee is meeting to interview candidates for ministry um, seeking fellowship in professional ministry with our association. And an article came across my feed this week about ministers nationwide joining the resignation tide of people in helping professions that are just saying, you know what, I'm going to go, I don't know, knit or something. They're just leaving their profession in droves amongst my colleagues. Yeah. Why pastors are joining the great resignation. It's a really interesting article. I'm going to get a little bit of it, but in the wreckage of Trumpian politics and a never ending pandemic, our jobs have been reduced to negotiating skirmishes over mask wearing and vaccination status. Former and current pastors have shared with me that their denominations and powerful conferences have pushed for a false unity that tolerates homophobia, racism, and conspiracy theories. So here's the thing that I want to say to you, yous, who sometimes feel a little bit of a schadenfreude. We have this going on in our congregations, too. There are people who won't vaccinate um, and who buy into kind of whatever conspiracy theories and people that want a false unity, given what's going on, that's not a thing that can happen with integrity, in my opinion, if we're going to uphold Unitarian Universalist values. So it's an interesting article. And I imagine for those who are in religious leadership, it'll touch on some of your experience. I imagine it doesn't just apply to conservative congregations. It also applies to our congregations. Years and years within Universalism that to be in ministry in this faith is more often than not toxic. And it is super hard to fulfill your calling <laughs> in congregations that's one thing but act in a different way and i think the fact that the uua is putting together a template for how ministers can separate from congregations is significant i think that the fact that our congregational polity has been reduced to this wishy-washy congregations can do whatever they want and that was not what congregational polity was about and i think we need to either reclaim what congregational polity actually means or get rid of it because it is not serving us as a faith right now it just isn't it's not serving us as a faith at all um, when you have individual congregations who feel like they can just do whatever they want to do and act however they want to act and treat their religious professionals however they want to treat the religious professionals because there's no one to tell them no you may not right you are part of a covenantal faith you are part of an association of congregations in which we are going to hold each other accountable and that congregational yes. accountability has just been so lacking that it's no wonder we have folks leaving. I think what's interesting now is like the white folks are leaving, right? The white ministers are leaving now. That's why we're paying attention because black ministers, ministers of color, yeah. white cis ministers are leaving. Our trans ministers have been leaving, right? For decades. So now we're paying attention because 
other group is leaving. And it's very similar to how we pay attention in congregations when white congregants, cis congregants leave because they don't like Black Lives Matter. They don't like how, quote unquote, political our churches have become. When, in fact, it's not that our churches have become <laughs> political. It's that our churches are now actually acting on our shared theology and that we are actually demanding accountability. And like we've said, accountability sometimes doesn't feel so great if, if you're not used to it. Yeah, if you've never had a boundary held, it feels like a rejection or an attack. And accountability is a healthy boundary where we say, this is how we agree to treat each other. And if you're not willing to do that, then we need you to find someplace else to be until you're willing to engage in healthy behavior, healthy relationships. Um, and as super comfortable, overwhelmingly white people, we're not practiced at that. We're accustomed to being the ones that are held to that account as opposed to we're the ones that are accustomed to having that power as opposed to feeling that power. And it's uncomfortable. And we have seen a number of our white privileged members leaving Unitarian Universalism or leaving our congregations and finding other things to do, other places to be, um, because we've got a whole new breed of ministers who are being trained specifically in anti-oppression, anti-racism work. And we're holding these boundaries and people are like, hey, I was used to just paying lip service to this and you're saying I can't do that anymore. And congregations don't have the muscle memory, they don't have the organizational skills to hold that boundary, particularly when it comes to people who carry a lot of unofficial authority within those systems. The power to be able to speak and be heard and be listened to and be acted on in a congregation, yes, there's... There, that is with the religious professionals, but also it is with the lay leaders. I've had lay leaders flat out say, I can outlast oh, yeah. you. I can wait until it is so bad for you that you're willing to leave because I can stay. Because it's comfortable enough for me to stay because nobody's going to call me on my shit. And you yep. calling me on my shit is only making me unhappy and I'm going to make other people unhappy until you leave. So. We right. need other leaders who are witnessing this and thinking, oh, wow, that's really bad to <laughs> do more than just say, oh, wow, that's really too bad. We need you to step into the fray and name it for what it is, right? right. And that's something you know, that doesn't feel great, sometimes doesn't feel good. But if we want to get ourselves to a place of theological foundation and to a place of understanding how our theology calls us to be and do, we need lay leaders within there. It won't work without it. It can be just religious professionals. Yeah, I was just thinking, that's not an uncommon thing, unfortunately, in Unitarian Universalism, having lay people say, I'll outlast you. That's a sentiment out there, especially I found among older folks who've been at congregations a long time. And honestly, I mean, it's a both and. Yes, there is a culture, an unfortunate culture among our lay leaders, 
also, I'm going to go back in our history since 1961, maybe before, but I do wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg. I think I don't know how much in the age of when ministers in the 60s and 70s, I think predominantly white male cis, cisgender, I'm not sure if they were heterosexual, I'm not going to make that assumption, but were kind of running rampant, having sex with congregants, kind of doing whatever they want. There was a lot of ministerial conduct. And to me, I ask the question, like, where was the time for those congregations to heal? How many folks, mm -hmm. our colleagues I've heard say, I'm an after pastor congregation? Almost all of them, like at some point in the congregation's history. So there's in the DNA, unfortunately, harm, bullying, let's protect ourselves. And where has there been the opportunity for accountability and healing and repair and reparations? Nothing happens in a vacuum. That's true for the United States society. We're such a punitive culture. Uh, look at what we do in prisons, right? With we, we just, not, we're into this annihilation and destruction of each other. The reason why Congress all out last you is because they're afraid. They want to belong. They feel like if we're doing something different, we're saying something different, or we look different than them, or a different identity, somehow it means that they, it's a scarcity mentality, right? Back to white supremacy culture. And so how do we inspire folks and really be clear, this is not about scarcity. There's enough of Unitarian Universalism for all of us to be a part of it if we want to. And here's what it means to be part of this faith community. So to me, it's always been a complicated dynamic because it didn't come from nowhere. If we're choosing to be, we are choosing to be religious professionals. And this is something I feel like we inherited, right? And it's kind of like inheriting this country. And it's where is the opportunity? And I think it's happening slowly with the Commission on Institutional Change, COIC, is we Unitarian Universalists are wanting to transform those of us who want Unitarian Universalism to be a more equitable, just, open, inclusive community. I don't know that everybody wants that. I'm no longer making the assumption that we apply to everybody, but I know the three of us on The View, the four of us do think this. How do we enter into a place of repair? Because otherwise we're going to just constantly be in battle. I've been in this situation where I've worked for four congregations and the UUA. So I've been in situations where I've been part of, the middle of, I've been accused of stuff. As you have, Chris, we've been in the literally the line of fire. And I kind of like, you know, in the middle of it, it's pain and I'm angry and I have all these emotions. And then afterwards, I'm like, but where's the faith in this? Where's Unitarian Universalism? Where's the opportunity for repair? I'm not talking pie in the sky. I'm talking what's the alternative if we don't have a path to transformation and repair? The alternative is annihilation for all of us. And I don't mean like, like oh my God, the world. I don't mean the world is banging, so let's be clear. But I don't know. It's like then no more Unitarian Universalism. I don't know. I'm, I'm... I think you're right. I think what you're is the inherent struggle of not just our faith, but a lot of faiths and religions, right? That are seeing numbers shrinking, that are seeing people leaving, because at the heart of it is a beauty of God's love. I name it as God's love for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to this ministry. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit clfuu.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, to rate it, and to review it so that others can find us. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.